Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. We'll be taking up our Lottie Moon Christmas offering Christmas Eve at our Christmas Eve service here in just a couple of days, a few days. And so you'll be in prayer about that. Some have already given. I know a lot of people are planning on giving on Christmas Eve, and every penny we give goes to fund international missions. So every single penny you give will go somewhere else in the world for missionaries, just like these folks as they share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you'd be praying about that. Some of you say, well, I want to give to that, but I'd like to go myself. Well, there are opportunities all next year. Our church will be taking uh, multiple mission trips around the world, and so if you feel led to go and share yourself, please talk to me. Talk to Randy Presley or Jason, our student minister, about your calling will help plug you in where the Lord's calling you to go. Okay, let me pray for us and we're going to begin this morning. Father, we love you, serve you, and we take very seriously, Lord, our calling to study your word. It is absolute truth. It's your word, Lord. And so we are going to take the time in our service now to open up your word, to open up the truth of the text and to study exactly what you've shown us and what you've given to us. So I pray that as we read it, Father, I pray it would move from kind of the academic and just the pages in a book, Lord, into our hearts. I pray it would be the desire of our heart to serve you and to learn more about you and to understand who you are in our lives. And Father, as we study the truth of your word, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit, we could be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas. It's the week of Christmas, even though decorations have been up since middle of June in most stores. We can say now, finally, Merry Christmas, the week is here, and I want to ask you a question this morning. If I could come around to every person and get you to respond, I wonder how you'd respond to this question. What is the message of Christmas? What's the message of Christmas? I'm sure most of us would probably give some sort of a biblical answer. We talk about the birth of Christ and the meaning of his life and I'm sure we could give a, a pretty clear understanding about the message of Christmas, but I'm, I'm convinced and I become more convinced with, with every passing year that if some person, and I know this is probably impossible, but if some person could enter into our society that knows nothing of Christmas, they don't understand the truth of Christmas, they don't understand the history, they don't know anything about Christmas, and they could only learn about Christmas by what they could see and observe in our world and talking to people and see on television and the internet, I'm convinced they would have a very different understanding of Christmas than most of us do. I was curious this week, and so I just kind of did a little research online at some of the things going on around our country related to Christmas. And it's kind of sad in the commentary of our society and the direction that kind of Christmas is going. I read articles about removing Christ and removing the things of the Bible and removing any semblance of religion. For example, one headline, no Christ in Christmas play, Kentucky school says, Charlie Brown Christmas to miss the pivotal scene. So there's this elementary school, they're going to do the Charlie Brown Christmas play. And when they get to the very end and Linus reads Luke chapter two, they're going to cut that part. And the superintendent talked about in the article the federal law and U.S. Supreme Court and the Sixth Circuit of Appeals and all that kind of stuff. And at the end, I thought it was very telling because I thought he kind of honed in on on his understanding of the message of Christmas. Here's what he said. He said, our district is fully committed to promote the spirit of giving 
and concern for our fellow citizens that help define the Christmas holiday. To him, Christmas is all about giving and concern for others. Now, that's a good thing. That's a good place to start. But that's not the actual meaning of Christmas. Another headline, a man told to remove the Christmas display in his yard because it might offend non-Christians. A man was told by his neighborhood homeowners association to remove his Christmas decorations for fear of offending non-Christians. So so to other people, see, Christmas is offensive. So if this person walked into our society and didn't know anything about Christmas, maybe they know that Christmas is about giving and about caring for others. Maybe they know that Christmas is offensive. If they went to Walmart on Black Friday, they think Christmas was about fighting over sheets with somebody in the store, right? Maybe they think it's about greed or how much stuff we can accumulate. They would probably get a pretty clear picture of what the world says about Christmas. But what's the Bible say about Christmas? What's what's the true message of Christmas? We're not surprised by any of these headlines. In fact, I bet every one of you have heard headlines just like this in other parts of the country. We understand that Christmas has kind of been eroded away and the truth and the real message of Christmas has eroded very slowly and very steadily over the last several years and over the last several decades. But as I read this and I kind of thought through this, it's like the Lord impressed upon me something I think was very important. We shouldn't be surprised when non-Christians act like non-Christians. We shouldn't be surprised. But it's like the Lord kind of reminded me they're only going to know the real meaning of Christmas if Christians speak up in truth and love. They're not going to get the true message on the internet. They're not going to get the true message by watching their local cable station. They're not going to get the true message by walking through the mall or by listening to somebody talk on TV. The only way they're going to get the true message of Christmas is if believers take seriously their call to speak truth in love and to share the actual message of Christmas. And so I want to spend some time this morning, the week of Christmas, being reminded of the actual message of Christmas. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open up Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Now let me just remind you, and just kind of a side note as you're finding Luke in the second chapter of the book of Luke. A steady, faithful diet of the Word of God will help you grow in your walk. You understand that? Just a little bit at a time, steady, steady, steady. That's what we do every Sunday morning. Nothing fancy, probably nothing real unique. We're just going to open the truth of God's word and we're going to study it every Sunday. You need to be doing that on a regular basis. If you wanted to get healthy, you wouldn't gorge yourself in one major meal of vegetables and never do it again, would you? You would eat vegetables a little at a time, day after day, week after week, month after month. That's how you become healthy. How do you grow on your walk? Not by opening up the Word and reading three chapters one time a month. Although that's a good start. You grow by reading a little bit at a time, day after day. The faithful intake of the Word of God. Now, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It's the clear Christmas story we've all heard before. And we're going to delve into this a little bit and kind of examine it verse by verse. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, 
She gave birth to her firstborn, a son, wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, there's a message that flows throughout this story that I want to think about. And I want you to understand, we're going to draw truth from this account, and then we're going to kind of build on each one of these truths. And the first truth I want you to see, number one, Christmas gives us a message of hope. Christmas gives us a message of hope. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. I've read this verse probably for the last three or four weeks because it's such a clear, telling description of exactly what the Lord did. But I want you to listen to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, when the time had fully come, in other words, when the time was exactly right, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. We don't know why God picked the time he did. We don't know why he picked the location he picked. We don't know any of the decisions that he made, why he made those decisions. But the Bible tells us very clearly in Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. See, the birth of Jesus Christ was no accident. It was no afterthought. It was no last minute decision. It was the culmination of God's plan to redeem humanity back to himself. Very simply. From the beginning, God has had a plan. And because God has had a plan, if you begin to understand that plan and study that plan, you can see all through the Old Testament especially that God demonstrates that plan. He reveals that plan to us. He shows us that plan bit by bit, little by little, verse by verse, passage by passage. And so we take it as a whole and we understand the Old Testament is filled with stories that look to the hope of a future Messiah. But here's the interesting thing about the hope of Messiah, the Old Testament. The people of Israel that longed for Messiah, that waited for all those centuries. Their hope wasn't found in a king, although they thought it was. It's an interesting account if you read about Saul, the first king of Israel. They begged for a king. They thought that would be their Messiah. And God says, you don't really need a king. But if that's what you want, I'll give you one. He gave him Saul, who was not the greatest of leaders. Their hope wasn't found in a king. Their hope wasn't found in a military ruler, although some of them longed for that. Their hope wasn't found in a golden calf or in idols, although we see that all through the Old Testament when they were confused. The hope of Israel, very simply, has always been in Messiah. You say, how are people in the Old Testament saved? That's an interesting discussion. People ask that sometimes. How how are people in the Old Testament saved? Were they saved because of their good works? Were they saved because they'd done enough sacrifices? Were they saved because they gave enough to the temple? The very simple answer is they were saved by their hope in Messiah, just like we are, it's the same. They looked ahead to future Messiah. We look back on what he accomplished, but salvation has always been through Jesus Christ. So unless we're placing our hope in Christ, we're gonna be disappointed. Now we're in that cycle that we come to every four years where people are running for president. Now, I can assure you, you've all got strong convictions about who you want to vote for, don't you? You've got strong convictions about who you're not going to vote for. And I could walk around and every person could tell me, I like this person or I don't like that person. So we're going to go through this process over the next several months of deciding who we're going to vote for. And we have this great privilege in our country of making that decision in November next year. But here's what you need to understand, and I think you probably already know this. But regardless of who we pick, regardless of the choice that we make, our hope isn't found in that person. You understand that? Period. I don't care who it is, that person's not going to fix the world. 
They'll probably do some good things. They'll probably make some mistakes. There'll be some policies we like, some policies we hate. But when we, when we kind of figure everything out and we kind of settle everything out, what we need to understand is our hope isn't found in a person. Our hope is found only in Messiah. It's only through the work of Jesus Christ that this world stands a chance. And so we see just kind of built within the foundation of this story that we find hope in Christ the Messiah. But I want to take it a little bit deeper and I want to make it a little bit more personal for you. I want you to notice beginning in verse 3. Pull those back up for me, Stephen, if you would, please. Luke chapter 2, verse 3. Let's, let's hone this in from kind of the big picture, big story, Messiah, hope of the world, down to a little more personal and intimate. Verse 3. Everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph, verse 4, right? There's some key players in this story. Joseph is one of them. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So Joseph is a key player. Bethlehem, the city, is a key player. Now verse 5. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So we've kind of got these key players. We've got this location, Bethlehem. We've got Mary and we've got Joseph. Now, most of us, if you've grown up in church or been around church very long, you probably already know the story. You understand Bethlehem, you understand Mary, you understand Joseph. But that person that we used at the beginning part of the sermon, the person that doesn't know anything about Christmas, that doesn't know anything about the story, wouldn't understand the significance of these people. Because as you begin to understand a little bit more about Bethlehem and a little bit more about Mary and a little bit more about Joseph, there's some things that they have in common. So I want you to think through with me just for a moment. There's an interesting passage of scripture in the Old Testament. There's a lot of prophecies of the Old Testament. I've spent a lot of time the last few weeks really kind of thinking about the prophecies written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ that point very clearly to Messiah. But there's one in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that's very interesting. It gives us a very specific name. You'll recognize it. I want you to listen to Micah 5 2. The words of the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, there's the word, right? Micah 5 written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. But you, Bethlehem, listen how Bethlehem is described. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So Micah kind of writes this prophecy about the city of Bethlehem. And when he describes and defines the city of Bethlehem, he says, even though you're small, this great ruler is going to come from you. In other words, even though you're insignificant, Bethlehem, even though no, nobody really knows where you are, nobody's heard of you, nobody really cares much about you, even though you're this small little city, this small little outpost, from you is going to come a ruler that will rule over all of Israel. See, it's a messianic prophecy. It's a picture in the Old Testament of exactly where Jesus was going to be born. So we see this insignificant little town that nobody seemed to care about, right? Now we think about the two people involved, Joseph. Joseph is a carpenter, lowly in the ranks of society. He's mentioned very little in the Bible. In fact, if you were to spend some time reading through the account of the birth of Christ and farther along, you wouldn't see Joseph mentioned hardly at all. Some of you are saying, wait a minute, I thought Joseph, I thought Joseph had a coat of many colors and he was sold into slavery in Egypt with Potiphar. That's Joseph of the Old Testament. There is another Joseph. And we'll get there in our study of Genesis, hopefully sometime this next year. That's the plan if we move along fast enough. But Joseph of the Old Testament is different from Joseph of the New Testament. Joseph of the New Testament, Christ's father, is nobody. Nobody knows him. Nobody's heard about him. He's barely even mentioned again in Scripture. 
Mary, Joseph's mother, very young, very poor, the low end of society. In fact, her name in Hebrew means bitterness and suffering. Now, just think about it like this. If you were a movie producer and you were writing a script and making a movie for the birth of Christ and you kind of got to decide all these things that were going to take place and you were going to pick the location for Jesus to be born, you never would have picked Bethlehem, a lowly nothing of a city. You never would have picked Joseph, a carpenter that nobody knew. You never would have picked Mary, this poor young girl that nobody cares about in society. You never would have picked these people. Why? Because they were outcasts. Nobody cared about them. They weren't important. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. When he comes, something big ought to happen. You ought to be born in a big city to a king and to a queen so all the world knows. And there's this great fanfare and pomp and circumstance and excitement about the birth of Messiah. But that's not the way God does it. See, to me, this is where the hope just really hits home. Because what we begin to understand when we see that Bethlehem is this nothing of a town. When Joseph is a nobody. When Mary is this poor, insignificant girl, we begin to understand that God's plan doesn't always involve the most educated. God's plan doesn't always involve the richest. God's plan doesn't always involve the most popular or the best looking. God's plan usually doesn't involve the people that we think it ought to involve. You know why? Because we see on the outside, but you know what the Lord sees? The heart. God says, you may not be that important to anybody else, but if you'll follow me, I can use you. He's kind of made this habit of using the insignificant through history. He's kind of made this habit of using the poor and the lowly and the people that nobody cares about. And the problem is, God can use us, but sometimes we just don't see that potential, do we? You say, I see that in Scripture, Adam, but... I'm just not sure the Lord can ever use me. I don't think I've got potential to do anything significant. I did some research and I came across a couple of interesting quotes that may help you understand this a little bit better. Popular Mechanics, 1949. I want you to listen to just these few quotes. It's going to help you understand that sometimes we don't always see the full potential of things. Popular Mechanics, 1949. Here's the quote from this magazine. Computers in the future may weigh no more than 1.5 tons. That was the quote in 1949. Thomas Watson, who's the chairman of IBM in 1943, he said, quote, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. Ken Olson, president and chairman of Digital Equipment Corporation in the 1960s and 70s, said, there is no reason anyone would ever want a computer in their home. Interesting, huh? Not only do you have one in your home, but if you've got a smartphone, you've got one in your pocket. And if you're taking notes on an iPad or some sort of a tablet, you're using it right now. Computers are, you drive your car, there's a computer in your car. Computers are everywhere. See, these these experts kind of miss the potential, right? They were nearsighted. They couldn't see far off in the distance. That's our problem sometimes. We're too nearsighted. We don't see our own potential. Because we look for the things on the outside, We look for intelligence and strength and riches and all the things the world thinks are important. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. I don't care about any any of those things. I care about your heart. God uses the least of us to do great things. That's the message of hope. Now, verse 8, let's continue. And there were 
shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Here's truth number two. Not only do we see the message of hope, but number two, Christmas gives us a message of glory. Christmas gives us a message of glory. God's glory is displayed in the announcement of his birth. Now, let's just kind of understand this scene just for a second, if we could. These are shepherds that nobody cares about. We'll get there in just a second. Very lowly in society. Again, another picture of how God uses the insignificant. But they're in a field. They've got a little fire going. It's probably the only light for miles around. Nobody out there. They're all by themselves. And all of a sudden, the Bible tells us an angel appears and makes this announcement. And all of a sudden, they look around and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord, this light that just appears everywhere. And they're able to see with their eyes on some level. The Bible doesn't explain how. They're able to see the glory of the Lord. Now, I want you to think about something with me just for a second. We, we take light for granted today. Because we have light switches, we have cars with lights, we have flashlights, we have flashlights on our phones. If you want light, it's pretty much at your fingertips. It's real simple. But if you want to understand first century when these people live, then do this. Go out in the woods at night, in the middle of the woods when it's pitch black. Don't take a flashlight or a lantern or your phone or matches or light. Don't take anything with you. Go out in the middle of the woods when it's pitch black and try to produce light. How would you do it? It's extremely difficult. Producing light is not an easy thing. And so for these shepherds, this little fire was a big deal for them. They probably worked pretty hard to rub the sticks. And they didn't have matches. They didn't have lighters like we have. They're striking a piece of metal, probably gets another piece of metal to get a spark. And they build a little fire. It's a big deal for them. So light is significant because it's hard to come by. All of a sudden, this angel appears and they're surrounded by light. It's this picture of the glory of the Lord. Now, here's the interesting thing. Oftentimes through scripture, when the Lord appears either to display his glory or to bring a message, he uses light to do it. In fact, there are all sorts of examples of the Lord appearing in the form of light. I'll give you just a few examples. Exodus chapter 3. The Lord's going to speak to Moses. You remember how he speaks to Moses? Burning bush, right? The bush that's on fire, that burns, but's not consumed. Book of Exodus, when he's leading them through the wilderness, you remember how he, how he leads them at night with a pillar of what? Fire so they can see him. Exodus chapter 24, one of my favorite accounts of the glory of the Lord, beginning in verse 15. The Lord had summoned Moses to the mountain and he told all the people of Israel, at this time would have been hundreds of thousands, probably a few million people. Moses goes up on the mountain, the Bible says in verse 15, and the cloud covered it. And then Exodus 24, 16, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. On the seventh day, the Lord called Moses from within the cloud. Now watch this. Here's the picture, verse 17. To the Israelites, these are the the hundreds of thousands of people down around the base of the mountain. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire. See, they look on the top of the mountain and all they see is smoke and fire. It just consumes the mountain. It's a picture of the glory of the Lord. The light demonstrates his power and glory. Acts chapter 26, verse 13, Paul describing his conversion. He's speaking to King Agrippa and he says, About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, not just any light, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. 
Matthew chapter 17, a different account. When Jesus walks up on the mountain to be transfigured, the Bible says after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, led them on the high mountain by themselves, and there he was transfigured before them. You remember how he looked? His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. See, great light all through Scripture oftentimes indicates the glory and the power of the Lord. John, the author of the Gospel of John, takes this idea and he uses the analogy of light and dark oftentimes. And when he speaks of darkness, it's oftentimes separated from the Lord. And when he uses light, it's a picture of the power and the glory of the Lord. So when Christ defines himself in John chapter 8, he speaks to the people and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, the the glory of the Lord is displayed all through Scripture. The glory of the Lord is still displayed in our lives today. Just continuing this theme of light, imagine the glory of the Lord in a sunset, right? Imagine the glory of the Lord in a sunrise. Imagine the glory of the Lord in the the brilliant Milky Way, the stars at night, and the the pitch black dark, and the, the beauty and the power and the display of God's glory through the stars and the moon. But here's the problem we have as we think about God's glory. Some of you are saying, you know, I get that, but I've never really understood God's glory. I've never really seen God's glory. Yeah, I see the beauty of a sunset and and the stars, but I don't know that I could recognize the glory of the Lord in my life. I don't think I could recognize the glory of the Lord in somebody else's life. I'm, I'm having this problem understanding the glory of the Lord. Here's the problem with the glory of the Lord. Oftentimes we can't see it because we've allowed too many other things to crowd it out. How many of you guys like Christmas lights? How many of you like to ride around and look at Christmas lights? A few of you? Yeah, you do that. It's kind of a family tradition for us. We usually pick a certain night during the Christmas season. We ride around and look at Christmas lights. We got two or three favorites, right? There's, there's the two houses up by Callaway Stadium. You know, Dallas Street, you know that house? Their electric bill must be $1,000 a month. I mean, they're just burning some lights in the house. There's several around town that we like, and so we kind of got our favorites. And we ride and we look at these Christmas lights, as do so many other people. But do you know what our trip and your trip and everybody else's trip to look at Christmas lights all has in common? There's one thing that has, probably more than one, but one very clear thing it has in common. We only go out and look at them after dark. I don't, I don't go knocking on my kid's door at 8.30 Saturday morning and say, Hey kids, get up, let's go get in the van, we're going to go look Christmas lights. It's 9 in the morning, let's go look at the Christmas lights around town. You kind of scratch your heads and, and you're thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? We don't go look at Christmas lights in the middle of the day for a couple of very simple reasons. Reason number one, nobody has them turned on during the day, right? There's nothing to really see. And even if they had them turned on in the middle of the day, you wouldn't be able to see them, would you? I mean, you could probably recognize, you'd be, is, that a, is that a green light up there? Is that a light on top of the house? Or, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't see them very well. Why? Because in the middle of the day... The sun is so bright, it makes those Christmas lights look dim, right? Now think about with the glory of the Lord in your life. When you shine the light of Christ into your life and allow his glory to shine, everything else looks dim by comparison. You say, I can't really see the glory of the Lord. It's because you've shut the light of Christ out. You hadn't allowed his glory to shine because everything else looks so good to you. So using that same analogy that John uses with light and darkness, you've kind of surrounded your world with darkness and you've kind of kept Christ out. 
you kind of keeping him at arm's length, right? You're going to let him in when you want to, but when you don't need him, you're going to keep him out. And when you keep him out and you kind of live in this world of darkness, everything else looks really bright, doesn't it? You're like, yeah, I like this. This is shiny. This looks really good. Surrounded by darkness, it looks really good. And I want to keep doing this. And I want to keep magnifying this. And I want to keep worshiping this. And I want to keep living like this. And we keep the, the light of Christ at bay and we keep his glory away. But the moment that we begin to allow Christ into every part of our life, the thing that we used to think was so bright begins to look dim to us. The thing that used to look show, so shiny looks so dull. The thing that used to look so beautiful to us looks really old and tainted. Why? Because the glory of the Lord outshines everything. And if we'll let it into our lives, the things that used to matter won't. And the things of Christ will take precedent over everything else we do. We see that same glory displayed through the birth and the life of Christ. Now verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So we see the message of hope. We see the message of glory. And now number three, Christmas gives us a message of salvation. Christmas is a picture of salvation, but it's not just salvation to a limited few. I want to show you in these two verses very clearly. Look again at verse 10. If you could bring that up for me, please, Stephen. Verses 10 and 11 are going to point this out for us very clearly. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for, what's the next word? All the people. Go to verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. See, the angel said, I've got this message for you, shepherds. That that long-awaited Messiah that that we've been prophesying about for centuries in the Old Testament and all the different points that that kind of pointed ahead to who Jesus was going to be and and the, the future Messiah, all those things have finally come true because today... In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. And the good news isn't just for you, and it's not just for your friends, and it's not just for the famous people. It's for all the world. See, when Jesus was born, and these angels made this announcement, they did it to shepherds, and I just find that fascinating. There's been a lot of things written about this, but we could say a lot about shepherds. In fact, if you wanted to understand shepherds kind of in the first century, they were considered by most as liars and thieves. They were isolated from society most of the time. They were uneducated. They were very poor. They were uncultured. They they were literally literally kind of the the bottom of the rung, the, the lowest of lows. Nobody cared about them. Nobody thought a whole lot about them. But the angel says, to to the lowest of low, right? We see this theme again with Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph and now the angels. To the lowest of low, Christ says, I've come for you. I've come to give you hope and to display my glory and to give you the offer of salvation. Because the picture we see here and the picture we see all through the New Testament is that the hope of salvation has come to all the world. Everybody. 
And let that rattle around in your brain just for a few minutes. Okay, salvation isn't just offered to Americans. Not just offered to people that look like you. Not just offered to people that speak English. Not just offered to people that we feel comfortable around that fit our same culture, our same mindset. Christ says, I've come to bring salvation to all who would believe, to everyone. To the very wealthy, all the way to the very poor. And I didn't just come, Jesus says, as a good teacher. I didn't just come as a moral leader. I didn't just come to, to, to focus on social justice. In fact, the Bible is very clear. When the angel is speaking to Joseph and prophesying about the birth of Christ, he's speaking about Mary. I want you to listen to what the angel says to Joseph. Speaking of Mary, she will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. John chapter 1 verse 29 John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness. Jesus comes to him and John's quote, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, here's what we have to understand about the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born for one simple reason, so he could live a sinless life, walk this earth, willingly walk to Calvary, allow himself to be arrested, tried, crucified, and killed for our sins. That's why Jesus was born. All of the things we see in Scripture, healing people, providing for their needs, displaying love, that was simply an offshoot of his main purpose, to come to this earth and die on the cross for our sins. So here's the question we have to ask. What have we done with this message of salvation? You know, it's always amazing to me this time of year how it seems like time just flies faster and faster. I've always been told the older you get, you know, and then when you have kids, it seems like we just had Christmas. And every Christmas, I kind of go through the same routine in my mind as I'm pulling down all the ornaments out of the attic. In my mind, I'm thinking in six weeks, I'm doing this all again the other direction, right? I'm putting it all back up. And sure enough, now here we are about a week and a half out or two weeks out from when we're going to take everything we spent all this time putting up, taking out, you know, putting on the tree and around the house. We're going to take all that stuff, put it back in the same box and put it back in the attic. And it just seems like it happens faster and faster and faster. We understand that, that time is moving quickly. And one day, as hard as it is for us to understand right now, all this will be gone. All the, the, the decorations you've put up, all the, the presents you've given all the material things you work so hard to earn, all the job status and the promotions and all of that stuff is gone. And the sobering reality is that the only thing that will remain is your soul. And so you better make good decisions about how you live your life. You better make good decisions about the message of Christmas. You better make good decisions about salvation in Jesus Christ because the Bible is very clear. There is no name under heaven by which man must be saved except Jesus Christ. That's it. This postmodern view that all roads lead to heaven is a lie of the enemy. I'm telling you right now, it's designed to confuse people. We have one way of salvation and that's only through Jesus Christ. I love how one writer phrased it. I think he just kind of nailed it. He said, we have royalty clothed in rags. 
majesty emerging in the midst of the mundane, eternity stepping into time, and the most prominent event of all human history being noticed by no one but a band of outcasts. It's amazing, this picture of Christ, because century after century after century of waiting and hoping and watching for Messiah, salvation has finally come to all who will believe. That, very simply, is the message of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. It's very clear and compelling and understandable, Lord, and we just praise your name for all you've given us, for what you've accomplished through Jesus Christ, for what you've done in this message of salvation, Lord, I just and all of the truth of who you are. So I pray we would take the message of Christmas, Father, the, the hope and the picture of your glory and the understanding of salvation, Lord, and I pray that we would use it in our lives to bring honor and glory to you, to share our faith with all of those that would hear. And I pray this Christmas season, over these next few days, Father, we would understand the true message of Christmas. We'd be vocal about it. We would speak the truth in love. And we would live our lives in such a way that other people can see Christ through us for your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand? We're going to give you the opportunities we always do to pray at the altar. You can pray about your walk. You can talk to me about salvation. You can, you can join the church. But this is the time we design in the service for you to respond to the teaching of his word as we sing. You come. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.